Good morning. The sun came out. Did you notice that? I think right before I came up to preach is when it came out. I don't know what that means, but I'll take credit for it. So It's all good. Thank you, Joel. You know, there was a day in our nation's history and even in much of the world when the general population was biblically literate. And that doesn't mean that everybody was a believer in Christ. It just meant that the Bible, in very general terms, was at least known. And this wasn't that long ago. People knew that Noah built the ark and not Moses. People knew that there uh, were 12 apostles, that Jesus' mother was Mary. People knew biblical phrases, too. And they knew they were from the Bible or they were Bible-based in some way. Phrases like, your cross to bear, a house divided against itself cannot stand, a leopard can't change its spots, a sign of the times, a two-edged sword, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. All these originated in the Bible. A lot of people don't know that now, uh, but they used to know that. These phrases became commonly understood and they were used even when they weren't used in a biblical context. Many more people were biblically literate even just 30 and 40 years ago, but now that ship has sailed. Not so much anymore are people biblically literate. With the increasing secularization in our culture, the Bible isn't just not understood, it's not even seen as relevant to our culture anymore. So consequently what's happened is we have now quite a significant biblical illiteracy in our society and here are some examples of that. What were Jesus' parents' names? Uh, Mary and Joseph. Very good. Very yes, good. I got that Very point. good. And approximately how many years ago did he live? Oh, gosh. 250 million years ago. Okay, how many wise men were there? Um, 12. All right, what did they bring Jesus' gifts? They brought him some wine. <laughs> Who found the burning bush? Uh, Nixon? Uh, Nixon? <laughs> what happened in the fight between David and Goliath? The story. They got in a fight with rocks. Who won? Goliath. Who was swallowed by the whale? Okay, now I'm on the spot. Um, Joe. DiMaggio? <laughs> Cain and... Abel? That's right. And who were they? Uh, sitcom? The Old Testament was originally written in what language? Um, isn't it Old English? Old English. Or Latin or something? Old script. How many apostles were there? Um, 40. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus sat with his apostles to eat and drink. The check was enormous. The check was enormous. Adrian, finish this line from the Bible. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's car. Now, the truth is you shouldn't covet your neighbor's car either. <laughs> but <laughs> it just gives you a good example of what our culture is like today now. Not only do people not know what the Bible says about much of anything anymore, but many people have come to believe the opposite, that certain phrases are in fact biblical when they're not. What's worse is these have become platitudes. They're 
kind of sayings that are meant to give people comfort. And often people assume they're biblical, even people who should know better. But they're not biblical, and they are, in fact, often the opposite of what Scripture teaches. Like, for example, this one. This is probably the best example. God helps those who help themselves. Okay? One study showed that nearly three-quarters of people who identify as Christians believe that this is what the Bible teaches. Or how about this one? God wants me to be happy. Now, if you turn to your Bibles in the book of Oprah, chapter 1, verse 1, you might actually find that. You might also find it in the book of Osteen, chapter 3, verse 3. But you won't find it in any version of the Bible that I would find or any of us in here probably would consider reputable. You will, however, find that God wants us to be holy more than he wants us to be happy. Of course, nothing wrong with happiness. It's just that holiness is clearly a much higher priority. One of the most common phrases that people think is biblical but isn't is follow your heart. Follow your heart. Don't you hear that? You hear that in movies. You hear it in music. You'll find it on television, and you'll also find that in the Gospel of Disney, chapter 7, verse 3. That the Bible tells us that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So follow your heart is actually one of the worst pieces of advice we could give, and it's certainly not biblical. This morning I want to unpack another one of these phrases that's commonly used. It's probably used even more often by believers than some of the other ones I just mentioned. And it's used by believers and unbelievers alike. And again, it is well-meaning. People mean well when they say this. It's meant to be a word of comfort in a difficult time. But here's the problem with it. It's just not true. You may have said it to someone yourself. So if you did, don't consider this a chastisement. I probably said it at some point. I don't know. You might think it's scriptural, but it's not. It's this one. God never gives you more than you can handle. The passage of Scripture that people often use as justification for this idea is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which reads, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So when you see the phrase in this passage of Scripture, He, referring to God, will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You might think, well, yeah, beyond your ability. That kind of means more than you can handle. God never gives us more than we can handle. However, if you are rightly interpreting the word of truth, your first response here might be, well, this verse really is referring to temptation to sin. Of course, the context of this verse does tell us that's true. It is referring to temptation to sin and not to trials or challenges in our life. But here's one of the issues and one reason why people kind of persist with this interpretation of this passage. The word translated temptation can also legitimately be translated as trial or test. So does that mean we have to rethink this? Can this verse really be saying that God never gives us more than we can handle? Well, I'm going to submit to you this morning, no way, no how. Or to quote that great biblical scholar, as he said last week, Jim Garrett, horse feathers. Because though it's true that the word temptation can also be translated trial or test, we cannot dismiss the immediate context of this verse. Nor can we dismiss the overall counsel, the context of the overall counsel of God, all of Scripture. 
This is a good example of how we can never read just a single Bible verse. There's always context, my brothers and sisters, that we have to take into account. There's cultural context, there's literary context, there's historical context, and then there's the context of the whole of Scripture. And of course, we have the immediate context of the individual passage that we're looking at, the verses that are surrounding it. So considering these things, when we consider all these kinds of context about this particular verse, this verse cannot possibly mean that God never gives us more than we can handle. This verse is in the middle of a longer explanation of the idolatry of Israel. We're not going to take the time to read this now, but if you want to, go back and read this particular chapter. The people of Israel in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt, they were guilty of idolatry. They were guilty of sexual immorality, and they were guilty of testing God's faithfulness. All of these things are sin. So before verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and after that verse, we see the context is temptation to sin. So we read that verse again with that context in mind. No temptation. Again, we can translate temptation as trial or test, but no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, you know what? It's still a wonderful promise, my brothers and sisters. God will give us what we need in that moment of temptation. It's just not a promise that God will never give us more than we can handle. It is an echo of of the greater promise that all of us can absolutely depend on. God is faithful. You know, that's the center of this verse. That's right in the center. God is faithful. And one way he manifests that faithfulness is that he is with us, always. So think about this. Would you rather rely on a false or misinterpreted promise that God never allows into our lives more than we can handle, Or would you rather know that God is faithful, that he never leaves us, that he never forsakes us, that he is with us always? There's a singer-songwriter that some of you who are a little bit older may remember named Wayne Watson, and he writes this this in one of his songs, which I think is a great... um, Okay, there we go. I'd rather walk in the dark with Jesus than walk in the light on my own. I'd rather go through the valley of the shadow with him than to dance on the mountains alone. I'd rather follow wherever he leads me than to go where none before me has gone. I'd rather walk in the dark with Jesus than to walk in the light on my own. It's important for us to understand some of these things here. First of all, when we look at this passage of of, of Scripture, we need to remember that God does not tempt anyone. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. This is important. Though God doesn't do the tempting, the reality is we are tempted. All of us. We're tempted in our own flesh, first of all. So we can't ever say the devil made me do it, because we're tempted in our own flesh. But God in his sovereignty also does permit the devil to tempt us. We see that throughout Scripture. So we are tempted, but why does God allow this? Why does he allow it? to make us grow in holiness, as we'll clearly see as we move along here this morning. So 
When Paul writes to the Corinthians, we need to see this in light of what Scripture teaches us. For those of us who are in Christ, we are never, never in a situation where we have no other choice to sin. That's what Romans, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is telling us. But even in this temptation, the focus is always on God. As we notice, God is faithful. And even more, with the temptation, he will provide. He will provide a way out. So God is faithful. He will provide. It's about his strength. It's about his strength. It's not about mine and not having more than I can handle. So that's what this verse means. And the reality that it's his strength and not our own that enables us to stand in or endure temptation brings us, leads us to a wealth of Scripture that not only undermines this platitude that we're looking at this morning, but totally contradicts that. God will never give us more than we can handle. First of all, think of it this way. Again, when people say that, I know that they're trying to encourage us, okay? You can do this, you know. It's kind of like a locker room speech, you know, in a movie where the team is behind at the half and the coach gives an inspiring talk and the music rises, huh? Can you see the scene? The coach says, now, go out there and win this game because God never gives us more than we can handle, right? And so what happens? The players all shout and they run out on the court or on the field and they go on to win the game, right? Because God never gives us more than we can handle. But that's the movies, folks. That's the movies. And, you know, I know that those kinds of things do occasionally happen in this life. They've really happened. You know, some of Joel's favorite sports stories are kind of like that. And they're inspirational and they're motivational. And they might ins- seeing things like that might inspire us to persevere. Certainly nothing wrong with that, okay? But can you see how such a platitude might actually be discouraging instead of encouraging? Think of it this way even though it's meant to be encouraging. Imagine you're in the midst of something in your life that's incredibly hard. Maybe you don't have to imagine. Matter of fact, I know many of us in here this morning don't have to imagine this because you're there. You're already there. Something incredibly hard going on in your life. It could be almost anything. It could be a moment in your life or it could be a season of your life that you're living through. But whatever it is, it's eating you up and it's consuming your emotions and your energy And again, some of us are there now. And then you have some well-meaning brother or sister who hears a little bit of your story and they come in an attempt to encourage you or comfort you. But remember, God never gives you more than you can handle. And your first thought isn't, yeah, that's right. I can handle this. Hey, I can handle this. Thanks for saying that. It really helped. Instead, your first thought may be after this so-called encouragement, well, the truth is I'm not handling it. I'm not handling it. And if if I'm handling it at all, I'm not handling it very well. So the problem must be me. The problem must be me. So this is how it can be kind of discouraging. Can you see how that might be perceived as even condemning or critical, even though it's meant to be comforting? So when people in crisis hear, God never gives you more than you can handle, they often receive the opposite message. Why aren't you able to handle this? What's wrong with you? This phrase could only come from our modern Western culture where we worship self above everything else. It's the American way after all, right? Manifest destiny. We're self-reliant. We're self-sufficient. We lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps. 
As individuals, we believe we are unique, we are creative, we can overcome anything, we're strong, we're resilient, and we believe in the enduring power of the human spirit. This is very humanist thinking, my brothers and sisters, and it's exactly our problem. It's not that we have no strength, it's not that we have no resilience, but all of the time, we don't have enough in and of ourselves. Again, we see this illustrated throughout the Word of God. How about Moses? Let's think about Moses for a minute. Remember when God spoke to Moses in the burning bush? Hmm? It wasn't Nixon, it was Moses. We read that in Exodus chapter 3. Verse 10 says, Come, this is God speaking, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Well, how did Moses respond? Well, God, I know that you never give me more than I can handle, so I'm game. I'm up for this. Let's go. Let's do it. Win one for you. Bring on that Pharaoh guy. Huh? Is that how Moses responded? No. Moses said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Moses said in verse 11, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So when Moses responds to God, who am I? He's not looking for a pep talk. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for a way out. He's looking for a way of escape. He's thinking, God, please don't ask me to do this. Who am I? He was aware enough of his own weakness and his own inability for such a task. God's answer to Moses is often his answer to us in those circumstances where we feel completely inadequate for the task that he's given us. And we read in verse 12, God's answer to Moses, who am I? God said, I will be with you. I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. In other words, I'm going to be with you and you're going to see because this is going to happen. God will be with you. That's his answer. So, Does God answer the question of Moses? No, he kind of shrugs it off, doesn't he? Who's Moses? That's besides the point. This has almost nothing to do with Moses. The answer is God himself in his presence. The strength comes. And Moses keeps looking for the loophole in this conversation. But each time God tells him the same thing, I will certainly be with you. God didn't pick Moses on the basis of his competence. The only reason this washout shepherd can face a mighty king is because a mightier king walks beside him. God didn't pick any of us because of our competence to do what he's asking us to do. So we see throughout Scripture the exact opposite of this platitude, which people try to make sound sort of scriptural by citing 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. God does allow into my life more than I can handle. I am weak. I am weak. I am not self-sufficient. I am frail. I'm a frail jar of clay. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. Without him, I can do nothing. These are all the things that Scripture tells us. Again, I'm not saying we have no strength, no resiliency. We just can't do anything of worth on our own. We sometimes think of the heroes, for example, of the Old and the New Testament, and we think, wow, they were amazing people. They had a strength that we didn't have. But you know what? They were people just like us. 
And they were just as much in need of God's strength as each one of us are. Look what God says, for example, to Isaac. We lost the screen there again. Genesis chapter 26. Let's try again. For you note takers, I want you to see this. Okay. Uh, The Lord appeared to him, speaking to Isaac, the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So God was saying to Isaac, my presence is enough. I'm with you. My presence is enough. That's what you need. It was enough for Isaac not to fear. He says something very similar to Joshua in Deuteronomy 31.23, and the Lord commissioned Joshua. He had a mission for him. He sent him out, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. Are we seeing a trend here? You getting the trend here? Fallible, frail, fearful people commissioned by the Lord for an impossible task. And each one, each one hears this from God. I will never give you more than you can handle. No! God's answer is always, I am with you. I will be with you. Gideon also expressed his fear of inadequacy for the task that God gave him. And that's in uh, Judges chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. He said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He said, I'm basically, I'm not up to the task. Find somebody else. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So God consistently says to his people, Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, I'm enough. Having you, having you with me and me with you is enough. I'm with, I'm with you and that's enough for you. So there's really no arguing with God when he gets like this. He simply insists on putting the weight of the world on his own shoulders and not yours. He promises to hold us tight and see us through. We see this in the New Testament Every bit as much as the old. We've looked at several Old Testament examples. So it's true in the sense that God will not allow a Christian to be crushed by temptations or trials. But the larger question is, how does he do this? Or better yet, who does it? I can't handle it, but he can. His way of escape that he provides always includes his presence. His presence brings his grace. His presence brings his wisdom. His presence brings his strength. His presence brings his power. We're not on our own, but he walks with us. It's like a little brother bringing his big brother along with him when he's being bullied. The bullies are only bullies with the little brother, right? They won't mess with the big brother because he's, well, bigger, right? Much bigger. So 1 Corinthians 10.13 doesn't say that God will not give you more than you can handle, but the word is clear that God will not allow into your life more than he can handle. As he walks with you, as he lives in you by the Holy Spirit that resides in the hearts of each of us who are in Christ. We see the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. 
For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul wasn't being dramatic here, okay? It is kind of dramatic what he was recounting. Hey, we were, we were going to die, but unless you think phrases that like beyond our strength or despaired or bragging, he's not bragging. But look at what he writes. He writes that we were burdened beyond our strength. Isn't that admitting that it was a little more than he could handle? Burdened beyond our strength? How else could you possibly read this? We despaired of life itself. They thought they were going to die. But Paul was clearly able to see the purpose of God in all this. It was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Paul had a similar experience with the Lord when he had what he called the thorn in the flesh. He told that story later in the same letter to the church at Corinth. And he pleaded with God. In other words, he prayed and pleaded with God to lift this from him. Three times, it says. So there's nothing wrong with asking God to take burdens and pains and trials and tests from us. Paul did it three times, and he was never chastised for asking again and again. But after the third time he asked, he received his answer from God in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. But he, God, said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The implication there is my power, Paul, is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul wrote, I will boast. There's the bragging. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So again, Paul saw God's purpose in his trial. In this case, it was most likely some physical ailment, but it could be anything. He's not boasting about how we got to take it like a man because God gives you, never gives you more than you can handle. He's boasting that his weakness was on display. His absolute dependency on God's power is made clear. So we can't just say, suck it up and push through. Right? We need him, my brothers and sisters. We need him every hour, as the song that we sing here says, right? We need him every hour. God loves us enough that he will not let us rely on our own strength. He will continue throughout this lifelong process in the life of a believer that we call sanctification to teach us that we must rely on him for absolutely everything. So because of that, he does allow into our lives more than we can handle. Most of you know that Barb and I closed one chapter and entered another chapter of our lives this past week when circumstances forced us to move her dad, Herb Jordan, into memory care because he's not got just Parkinson's disease anymore. He's got Parkinson's disease dementia, and it's pretty severe. So for three and a half years, we had uh, first both of her parents living with us, and then the last month, last nine months, we've had just her dad after her mom went to be with the Lord last April. When they moved in with us, her mom had Alzheimer's, and her dad had Parkinson's, and I quickly discovered that this was a season of school in my life where God was teaching me, God using our experience to deepen my understanding of what it means to love with agape love by dying to the deeply rooted selfishness in my own life. 
But I also discovered that I had to learn to die to my own self-sufficiency, not just my selfishness. Even though I've never really believed that God never gives me more than I can handle, even though I knew that without him I can do nothing, functionally I realized I was kind of living as if I could handle it. We're never independent, folks. We're never independent. In Christ, we are always interdependent on each other and totally dependent on him. I thought when we started this adventure of caring for my in-laws that we could handle it as well. And, you know, honestly, I've been kind of a self-sufficient guy most of my life, for better or for worse, probably for worse. Even though I've always tried to be careful to give credit to give glory where credit is due to the one who deserves the credit and the glory. But I was pretty confident I could handle this. I had a pretty good idea of what Parkinson's disease was about from my experiences with Bill Sanders, TCF's first pastor. He was diagnosed in the early 1980s with Parkinson's and he lived until 2011. In the last 20 or so years of Bill's life, I spent a lot of hours with him, the original brother Bill, and I watched his life as the disease robbed him of his agility, of his mobility, of his speech, and so much more. I thought I had a pretty good picture of what to expect with Barb's dad when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's and he was actually much older than Bill and they moved in with us. I also thought I had a pretty good idea of what to expect from Alzheimer's. My college roommate's dad had Alzheimer's and I heard a lot from him. My fellow elder Dave Troutman, his dad had Alzheimer's and Dave told me stories as well. The wife of the friend who was the best man at my wedding had Alzheimer's and I heard horror stories from him. I know others too and they shared some of these experiences with me from their first-hand experiences and what Alzheimer's had done to their parents, uh, the horror stories about angry and belligerent behavior, unmanageable, totally bizarre things that happened. I went to the funeral of my college roommate's dad after he died of complications from Alzheimer's and he said, was the first of several I heard say this, it was like my dad died twice. But no, honestly, I wasn't nearly as ready for this as I thought of I was, you know. Hearing stories, even from close friends and hearing a lot of this stuff and other people's experiences are one thing, but living it out day by day is entirely another thing, or as we say here in Oklahoma, a whole nother thing. I've described to some of you that through the first two and a half years of caring for my mother-in-law especially, dealing with her increasingly difficult behavior was kind of like Chinese water torture. You know what Chinese water torture is? The drip, drip, drip on the forehead. And it seems unlikely to bother you. That's just water, right? All right? But what happens? After minutes, after hours, after days, after weeks of this, it starts to bore a hole in your head. And so, yes, it does bother you. It wears you down no matter how determined you are not to let it bother you. This became part of the death to self and self-sufficiency that God has been wanting me to learn. Yet as time went on these past three and a half years, the requirement for patience and grace grew. I think the grace grew too, but the requirement for it grew. And sometimes, honestly, my ability to find the patience and grace seemed to decrease. At least it felt that way. This was especially true these last two Christmas seasons. A year ago, Gigi got an infection, which led to her steep decline and just this past Christmas season Herb got an infection of the same kind and 
Both of them had gone downhill in a matter of weeks. And it made caring for them in our home more difficult, and eventually it made it impossible for us. So I can testify before you this morning to the glory of God that I've had many moments that I experienced and felt the power that Paul described. That is God's power in my weakness. But I can also testify that I've seen my weakness in ways that I could not have imagined. My brothers and sisters, I am frail. I'm not as strong as I thought I was. People would say to me, and quite often actually I heard this, after I'd regaled them with a story about Gigi's absolutely bizarre behavior, they'd say, I don't know how you do it. And my typical response was, only by the grace of God. That sounds real good, sounds real spiritual, right? And of course it's true. The truth is it clearly was the grace of God, whether I felt it or not. It was God's grace. And sometimes I truly did feel it, but there were other times it felt as if the best I could do is just put my feet on the floor each morning, put one foot in front of the other, and just do what I needed to do. And sometimes, actually more often than I care to admit, sometimes this was not a triumphant, God is faithful, His mercies are new every morning, shout. It was more like a whimper, more like, here we go again. That's how it felt. Yes, I knew that God's mercies are new every morning. I knew it. Actually, that's from one of my all-time favorite passages of Scripture. It's so real. It's so relatable for anyone who's experienced any kind of difficulty or challenge or pain or outright suffering. It's encouraging. It's the Word of God to you, and it's the Word of God to me. So we see here at the end of 18 verses of unremitting lament. There's a reason it's called the Book of Lamentations, in which Jeremiah tells of a lot of the pain and suffering that he has endured. And he was still encountering at that point. We read in Lamentations chapter 3, beginning with verse 20, I well remember them. In other words, all these afflictions, all these things that I've experienced, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Sometimes when we're in the middle of this, we want to stay there, right? My soul is downcast within me. But here it is, folks, verse 21. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. There we see it again. God is faithful. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, we've got to do this sometimes too. We've got to have self talk to self. That's one self talk to, you know, it's like the, the, the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This is the great turnaround that I rely on each and every day. Yet this I call to mind. I remember it. I think about it. This is what the Word tells me about God's character, about His faithfulness, and therefore I have hope. The Lord's great love. I have hope in the Lord's great love. I am not consumed. His compassions, His mercies never fail. His compassion and mercy are new every morning. I don't have to rely on yesterday's mercy and compassion. And then ultimately, God is a faithful God. So trusting in God's sufficient grace and presence with me is a conscious choice each and every day. Sometimes 
several moments daily, and often in the worst moments of each day. For example, when I hit the wall emotionally, and I feel like I couldn't do this another minute. Worse still, when I see my dear wife hit the wall, and I feel powerless to ease her pain. That's as hard as hitting the wall myself. Harder. But I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. I'm thankful that God knows I'm just a jar of clay, folks. I'm dust. I'm dust. I'm with the Apostle Paul here. He wrote, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. My brothers and sisters, God will allow into your life more than you can handle. That's not a promise of Scripture you're going to hear in many churches this morning. But you can count on it. But you can also count on the better promise. I will be with you always. I will be with you always. God says that to us again and again in His Word, and it's true. It isn't just a promise, folks. It's the promise. It's a better promise than God giving us, not giving us more than we can handle. It's a better promise. So we know and we rely on that promise because God is faithful. Some of you are in that spot right now. And you can stand, you can raise your hand, you can be seated there. But the Lord wants us all to respond to this message this morning. So let's pray. If you want to stand, we'll pray with you. If you want to be seated, we'll pray with you anyway. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the tremendous truth of your faithfulness, the tremendous truth that you will be with us always, even to the end of the age. You'll never leave us and never forsake us. And we claim that as the best promise in your word, that you are with us always. And Lord, that even though we do get in this life more than we can handle. We never are allowed to experience more than you can handle because you are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords and you are sovereign over every circumstance that's in our lives. So Father, help us, Lord, to rely on that great turnaround. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. Help us to rest in that, to rely on that, to look to that, Father, always as we walk through this life and the challenges you bring. May your Holy Spirit, Father, instill this heart in each of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.